think we all understand that to some extent, billionaires have a carefully crafted image. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are at this point as much of a celebrity as they are two of the richest men in the world. It makes sense that they would try to control what we know about their lives, right? But at what point does a billionaire's controlled image become a downright lie? And why do they lie about themselves in the first place? Well, hello everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about billionaires and the cultivated image they present to the public. I've always found this topic really fascinating, and I hope you do too. So for today's episode, we're going to start by talking about why these lies form in the first place and begin by using Elon Musk as our first example. So let's get into it. Depending upon how well you want to do, and particularly if you're starting a company, you need to work super hard. So what, what does super hard mean? Uh, well, when my brother and I were starting our first company, uh, in, instead of getting an apartment, we just rented a, a small office and we slept on the couch. Uh, and we, we showered at the, the YMCA. And uh, we're, we're so hot up, we had just one computer. So the, 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 the website was up during the day uh, and I was coding at night. Now, I've spoken about Elon Musk before when speaking about his abuses at Tesla. Yet, despite what happens behind the scenes, Elon Musk has an image of, as In These Times aptly puts it, a quirky and slightly off-kilter playboy genius inventor capable of conquering everything from outer space to the climate crisis with the sheer force of his imagination. What's especially important to understand about Elon Musk's funding is that it doesn't simply come from the sales of Tesla, but from public funds and from taxpayers. Tesla Motors, SolarCity, and SpaceX have all benefited from about $5 billion in local, state, and federal government support. SpaceX itself exists largely for the sake of competing for government contracts. It's like $5.5 billion partnership with NASA and the US Air Force. That's kind of like its whole deal. The US Department of Energy has directly invested into SpaceX, as well as Tesla's work on battery technology and solar panels. Even though there are successes, it's not as if taxpayers get any of Tesla's profits, yet they do pay for its failures. Economist Mariana Mazzucato explained in her 2013 book, The Entrepreneurial State, that many of the companies considered headed by these geniuses, such as Elon Musk, quote, owe much of their success to decades of public sector innovation through repackaging technologies developed over the course of several decades into new products. Take the iPhone, essentially a collection of Defense Department Research and National Science Foundation grant projects packed into one shiny machine. The prospect of the state owning a stake in a private corporation may be anathema to many parts of the capitalist world. But given that governments are already investing in the private sector, they may as well earn a return on those investments. That's not to say that there's absolutely no benefit to Tesla cars or solar city panels, but when we hail Musk as if he's the sole creator, it's dangerous and it's kind of untrue. Musk is investing billions of taxpayer dollars into his pet projects, whether it's his enterprise on Mars or high-tech flamethrowers. When he fails, taxpayers pay the price. There's plenty of articles out there that say we should be inspired by his failures as Elon Musk is an entrepreneur. And when he fails, it proves that it's okay to struggle and it takes time to become successful. 
Sure, that's one way of looking at the situation, but a lot of other articles that talk about his failures neglect to mention that he wasn't exactly playing with his own money. Even while Tesla and SolarCity reported net losses in 2015 after about a decade in business, the stocks of both companies continued to climb. Musk goes where the government money is, and clearly it's paid off for him. Aside from this, he's also embraced carbon taxes and gone so far as to present himself as a self-made entrepreneur. He's compared carbon taxes to taxes on cigarettes and alcohol, things that we believe are more likely to be bad than good. Yet, as other sources explain, Musk is also emblematic of a curious strain of denial that seems to infect Silicon Valley as a whole. His breakaway success is a powerful reminder of how the public sector can turbocharge innovation. It brings to mind the government-backed $500,000 investment in a young startup known as Apple and the federal grants that funded the prototype for Google. But rather than becoming poster boys for public-private partnership, Musk and other Valley entrepreneurs have gone out of their way to distance themselves from their patron. Shortly after paying off his $465 million loan, Musk proclaimed that the government should no longer provide such assistance. A carbon tax would be a better way, he tweeted, adding, yes, I am arguing against subsidiaries and in favor of a tax on the end bad created. Market will then achieve the best solution. If you're an entrepreneur like Elon Musk, you will take the money where you can get it, but at the same time, believe as a matter of faith that it's entrepreneurship and technology that are the sources of social change, not the state, said Fred Turner, a Stanford professor who wrote the book From Counterculture to Cyberculture. It is not quite self-delusion, but there is a habit of thinking of oneself as a freestanding independent agent and not acknowledging the subsidiaries that one received. And this goes on all the time in the Valley. Elon Musk is now obviously successful and now he's quick to bite the hand that feeds him because well, he's already been fed, so it doesn't matter anymore. It's possible that Tesla would have survived without any government loans, but it would have been much more difficult. Musk co-founder says as much. Though he may be seen as a genius, bar hopping on Mars and flamethrowers is not going to save humanity. Musk owes much of his success to taxpayers and the government. Even if you don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that, it's the lack of transparency or awareness that can be a bit concerning or even a bit delusional at times. All right, so now that we've touched on why someone may want to present as a genius, self-starting and carefully crafted image for themselves, let's talk about how these billionaires actually go about doing that. Since we used Elon Musk as an example, let's continue with him. In July, 2021, news spread that Elon Musk, the multi-billionaire, lives in a $50,000 prefab tiny home. Though $50,000 is still a lot of money for most of us, it's certainly cheap for a home and far more attainable than the luxurious multi-million dollar homes many other executives live in. It's no wonder that after announcing his primary home is a $50,000 house he rents from SpaceX, people were stunned. The transportable 20 by 20 unit is about only 400 square feet. And not only did Musk claim to live there, but he sold most of the properties in his real estate portfolio. And he even listed his $37.5 million home in San Francisco. It's nice to see a tiny home, but to outsiders, it appeared as if Musk was and is living well below his means. His carbon footprint is also said to be less than other billionaires, especially because he doesn't own a super yacht. Other videos online say that he does own a super yacht, but it's an electric one. Generally speaking, this all makes him look environmentally conscious and someone that you could trust enough to buy a car from. 
He not only has to appear like a genius, but someone that is going to deliver on his promise to change the world. The thing is, while the tiny house move may make Elon look good, it's not going to do much at all. Paying taxes would do that. As one article from The Guardian writes, it's more than a little nauseating to watch a billionaire whose wealth rocketed during the pandemic being venerated for living modestly. Sure, Elon Musk may have fans and devotees who applaud him for making the move to a tiny home, but it's more of a transportable office he stays in from time to time more than anything else. While Musk doesn't technically own a home, his company effectively owns the village of Boca Chica, Texas, where it's located. SpaceX has been accused of ushering out the village's residents, many of whom are retirees and pressuring them to sell their homes. Public beaches are reportedly frequently closed with little warning when SpaceX is running tests. Musk has also taken the liberty of unofficially renaming Boca Chica Starbase for better or worse, Boca Chica belongs to Elon now. And sure, even if his emissions are low by billionaire standards, he still emits almost 2000 tons of CO2 in transportation alone because of the planes, helicopters, and cars he uses. For some comparison, an average US household, not an individual, but the whole household emits less than eight tons per year between housing, transportation, and heating. And he emits almost 2000 tons. The article adds that not only are his emissions still incredibly high, but he's effectively bragging about living modestly during a housing crisis when many American workers can't afford a one bedroom rental. Not only that, but Musk has paid little to no income tax in recent years. Between 2015 and 2017, he only paid $70,000 in federal income tax and in 2018, he paid nothing. Apparently he does this by living off loans made from his stock options, meaning he doesn't actually take a salary from Tesla. Musk, like plenty of other ultra rich, make a vast majority of their money from assets, not income. Suffice to say, Musk is cash poor by billionaire standards because he does this. By our standards though, well, he's in the top three richest people on this planet. So next let's talk about company beginnings and Apple. There's a common misconception that Apple started in a garage. Whereas this isn't a total and complete lie, it's also not the full truth either. Steve Wozniak is Apple's co-founder and according to him, it's an overblown myth. The garage represents us better than anything else, but we did no designs there. We would drive the finished products to the garage, make them work. And then we'd drive them down to the store that paid us cash, Steve said in an interview with Bloomberg TV. Garage stories aren't unique to Apple by any means, but it's a legend so prevalent with their company that said garage was even christened a historic site. In actuality, there were hardly ever more than two people in the garage and they were mostly just sitting around not doing much at all. Still, garage startups are so common that there's even a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley called Garage Technology Ventures. And business students themselves are so convinced that companies do in fact take off this way that in a survey by Pino Audia of Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business and Christopher Ryder of Georgetown's McDonald's School of Business, almost 50% said they believed companies get their beginnings in garages, basements, dorm rooms, or homes. In actuality, a survey of startups revealed that the number was closer to 25%. Starting in a garage is said to be crucial to the legend of Silicon Valley companies, and it creates the image of a few scrappy guys with a genius idea. These stories make people believe that anyone can start a billion dollar business as long as they've got the will and a way to make it happen. For some, sure, that might be the case, but for many, 
It just isn't. Audia and Ryder argue that Apple's brilliant ideas weren't the product of tinkering in a garage. They were the products of years of working in related industries, Wozniak at HP and Jobs at Atari. The garage myth discounts the role of prior organizations in providing Jobs and Wozniak with confidence, exposure to fine-grained information, knowledge of the business, and access to key social ties. In other words, the garage story makes these people look more relatable, but you can't pretend that they didn't have money, funding, and experience. It might sound more fun to think of like this isolated genius messing around with whatever scraps he can find in a garage. The story may be more accessible that way, but it's not reality. Google rented a garage from a friend that later did become an employee, but they also had more than a million dollars in venture capital at the time, and they quickly outgrew the space and moved on to other offices. Some reports say they were only there for about five months, and by 2006, the company bought the house to use as a landmark to perpetuate the story. Now they have people tour the area and talk about their humble beginnings, and I'm guessing they failed to leave out the millions of dollars in venture capital, but you know, okay. An article from Slate states, forget about the mythical lone inventor in the garage. Real innovations happen in big, well-funded labs when discussing everyone from Hewlett Packard to Thomas Edison. We adore the idea of a lone genius. We even romanticize it, according to Slate. In his 14 month quest to develop a commercially practical electric light bulb, Edison wrote, I tested no fewer than 6,000 vegetable growths and ransacked the world for the most suitable filament material. It's awe-inspiring to think of Edison sitting alone at his workbench in Menlo Park, New Jersey, patiently testing fiber after fiber, hour after hour, day after day. It's also patently untrue. In fact, Edison was leading the world's first large-scale research and development laboratory, a highly organized multi-purpose facility staffed by a 40-person team of scientists and technicians. He went on to build even larger, sophisticated research facilities that at their peak employed over 200 scientists, machinists, craftsmen, and other workers. Yet when he died in 1931, the New York Times called him a solitary genius and wrote that with him passes perhaps the last of the heroic inventors and the greatest of the line. The future probably belongs to the Corporation Research Laboratory with trained engineers directed by a scientific captain. And I hate to break it to you, New York Times, but Edison was that scientific captain by that point. He wasn't some lonely genius and neither was Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, or the founders of Google. Collaboration and quite frankly, money are typically the keys to success in these businesses. The National Register of Historic Places calls the garage where William Hewlett and David Packard began the birthplace of Silicon Valley. However, while it's true that the pair began building their first commercial audio oscillators inside there, the prototypes were actually built in the laboratory of Stanford University. But what about Amazon? I know I've talked about Amazon before and I've even stated that they began in a garage when Jeff Bezos began selling books online. Hello, who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what what is your claim to fame? (laughs) I'm the founder of amazon.com. Where did you get an idea for amazon.com? Well, three years ago, I was in New York City working for a quantitative hedge fund when I came across the startling statistic that web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. So I decided I would try and find a business plan that made sense in the context of that growth. And I picked books as the first best product to sell online for making a list of like 20 different Well, with Amazon, that's actually true because Bezos wanted it that way. Apparently, Bezos said that having a garage was a crucial requirement for him because it would allow him to, quote, boast of having a garage startup like Silicon Valley legends, end quote. 
Bezos knew that having a garage startup would win him points, just like all the other tech giants before him. And he certainly wasn't wrong. Headlines and news articles still talk about his journey from suburban garage to the edge of space. Even though they're not entirely wrong, Bezos did get his start in a garage. It was a calculated move on his part. When we hear garage inventor or how a tech giant got their start in a garage, we tend to assume that they were doing whatever it took to get by or that they took this position out of necessity. Not because they knew it would make for a good story down the line, but what's the harm, right? There are some companies like Microsoft who genuinely do seem to have gotten their start in a garage. It's just like twisting the truth a bit in most cases. It's not a total lie for others, so why should anyone care? The trouble is, these stories actually threaten to undermine public support for the scientific infrastructure that is necessary to fuel innovation. And think about it. If the New York Times basically villainized scientific corporations back in 1931, and we continue to operate under the misconception that Google, Apple, and HP were all these self-starters, well, we would have to recognize that this isn't the case and give credit where credit is due. And that would mean we would have to give credit to the laboratories, to scientific facilities, the many faces that may not ever be fully recognized or compensated for their contributions. Now, speaking and hearkening back to Bezos and that purposeful garage, let's see what else can be said about his cultivated image. For starters, multiple articles, especially those on Business Insider, regard him as a family man. He's called a role model for other aspiring entrepreneurs. He talks about how he was packing boxes on his hands and knees when he first started selling these books. And he talks about his wife and family frequently. Yet for all his talk about family values and being an every man, Jeff was having an affair for quite some time. One Medium article claims all the positive articles about Bezos are simply the work of clever PR specialists that again, made him seem more relatable and likable. And yes, the fact is some billionaires simply have skillful PR teams that allow them to twist a narrative a bit. And yes, Bezos is absolutely one of them. When photos were leaked of him and his girlfriend, many believe that Bezos' girlfriend's brother was the one behind it. Bezos, rather than point the finger at him, implied that foreign actors were trying to destroy his reputation for geopolitical reasons. He also went after the tabloid itself, using emails from their owner to accuse them of extortion. Bezos deftly turned the tables and there's no denying that as one source puts it. There's a lot to question here because the whole thing boils down to a shady little shakedown of an indiscreet business mogul. But it's also a pretty impressive masterclass in PR and media relations, or at least tabloid relations. Bottom line, the whole messy episode is a footnote in Bezos' life and career, and his reputation has probably never been stronger. That's power. Look, we won't ever really know what happened behind closed doors. And when it comes to Bezos and the cheating, I often don't bring up more personal matters when discussing CEOs or bad businesses, but in this case, the whole pattern and the whole problem here is that billionaires like Bezos have gone to great lengths to appear a certain way that may be far from the image that they project. In this case, Bezos' shy, ordinary, casual family man persona just wasn't true. The Wall Street Journal writes, for more than two decades, Mr. Bezos had built a public persona of a low-key billionaire who did the dishes every night, had a happy home life, valued frugality, and was a bit of a nerd at work. More recently, as Amazon has expanded into the world of entertainment, the e-commerce entrepreneur began to take on the trappings of a different kind of public figure. He began getting photographed by paparazzi and appearing publicly with movie stars and took up with a Hollywood girlfriend. 
The shift became clear to the world a day after his January 9th tweet announcing his pending divorce from his wife of 25 years, when the National Enquirer reported his affair with the wife of the chairman of a top Hollywood talent agency, a former entertainment show host, including details of their intimate texts. Joshua Weinstein, a close Bezos friend since high school, said the two men have been in touch since recent disclosures, and he's the same lovely, wonderful Jeff I've known for 40 years. Another longtime associate of Mr. Bezos, by contrast, was grasping for explanations and said he didn't recognize the executive. Nothing about it seems like Jeff, the associate said. And hey, maybe it's true that Bezos simply changed one day and for a while, he was more of a powerful family man. However, when Bezos was questioned in 2020, the ruthless businessman, but loving family man image completely vanished before Congress. Instead, Bezos mumbled, he was constantly interrupted, and he even forgot to unmute his microphone when talking. That sure seems far from the Bezos that we once knew. As The Telegraph put it, if anything, Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg seem to trade places. Zuckerberg has for the longest time been an awkward, nervous, hoodie-wearing student, despite not exactly being a student any longer. Instead, when Mark spoke at the hearing, he looked more like an executive. Sure, it's possible that Zuckerberg simply got better at these hearings considering just how many he's been a part of, but it's definitely a bit odd how Bezos came across by comparison. As the Telegraph continues, they say. Bezos, however, largely failed to charm members of Congress as they grilled him about Amazon's business practices. One topic that was of particular concern to multiple members of Congress was whether Amazon uses data on third-party products sold through its site to help it produce its own competing items. Amazon has denied that its employees routinely use this data, but Bezos waffled when pressured on his knowledge of policies banning employee access to the valuable information. We are investigating that. I do not want to sit here and I do not want to go beyond what I know right now, he said hesitantly. Amazon's chief executive also played dumb when asked if he was aware of claims that virtual assistant Alexa promotes Amazon's own products over third-party items. That is unacceptable if those are facts, he said. Does this mean Bezos was carefully trying not to be ruthless while Zuckerberg realized he needed to come across as professional? I'm not entirely sure, and I don't wanna speculate much further on that. Still, as these articles found it worth mentioning, so did I. As much as I highly doubt that Bezos wanted to appear uninformed and blow his congressional hearing, it's definitely been interesting to see how he behaves at these hearings and how this switch in personalities has occurred. As for Zuckerberg, his college student nerdy image is the one that he chooses to put out into the world. Though he comes across that way, in no small part thanks to his closet of just plain gray shirts and blue hoodies, it's not as if these gray shirts are from Walmart or Target. His shirts are specially ordered from Brunello Cuccinelli and they cost between three to $400 for each shirt. H&M made replica shirts for about $40 each as part of their joke Zuckerberg collection, though they aren't on sale anymore. And sure, he can buy whatever shirts he wants, whatever expensive clothes or plain gray shirts he desires, that's fine. It's not just the shirt that I have a problem with really, it's just how phony it all is. For example, did you know that Zuckerberg's seat in Congress was actually fitted with a booster cushion to make him appear taller, which only served to distract press once one source called the truly freaky attempts at misdirection flowing from the face hole. And that is gonna be one of the best descriptions of dodging questions I've ever heard. As Engadget writes, it's a carefully cultivated image and indulgence granted to a certain kind of white startup jock who gets endless chances to drunk drive democracy and human rights as if he's a freshman intern just learning the ropes of ethics, trust, and professionalism. An image Zuckerberg himself perpetuated throughout the hearing by mentioning Facebook's college dorm room creation myth on a loop. 
He almost broke the brains of fact checkers at the New York Times too. Mr. Zuckerberg told lawmakers that his company first learned of Russia's Facebook influence operations right around the time of the 2016 election itself. Prior to this week, the answer was 2017. When he told lawmakers that we made changes in 2014 that would have prevented what happened with Cambridge Analytica from happening today, New York Times was like, yeah, not so much. The paper flat out said Zuckerberg's statement, Cambridge Analytica wasn't using our services in 2015 as far as we can tell, is false. And pretty much everyone on the planet laughed when he said, you're not allowed to have a fake account on Facebook. As silly as it may seem, Zuckerberg needing a booster seat to talk to Congress, the purpose seems to be to give the press something to talk about that isn't Facebook's crimes. Maybe it's to make Zuckerberg appear more innocent, more of a naive college kid that didn't realize what people were using his platform for when nothing could be further from the truth. Zuckerberg isn't a college student anymore and his naivety isn't silly or excusable, it's dangerous. Zuckerberg seems to recognize this to some extent, or at the very least his PR team does, and his public image has started to evolve since the Congress hearing. He appears more confident, more sure of himself, and slowly but surely opinions of him along with his image have begun changing. Now, before we continue on to discuss the image of Bill Gates, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. It's October, it's the fall, it's spooky season, and it's time to curl up, stay indoors, and not wander outside. And holding myself true to one of those things, one of the things I don't wanna do is go to the grocery store. So I'm really lucky that I work with HelloFresh and that I've used them for over a year at this point now. And HelloFresh is awesome because they send you fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering recipes right to your door so you can skip the store and get to cooking. HelloFresh is endlessly customizable, so there's something for everyone. It doesn't matter if you need family-friendly meals, low-calorie, or vegetarian options. They offer over 50 recipes a week in a variety of flavors, cuisines, and ingredients so that there's something for everyone. And with HelloFresh, you can customize your order every single week, change your delivery day, or skip a week entirely, whatever works for your busy, spooky season schedule. So if you wanna get started with HelloFresh, make sure to go to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's up to 14 free meals, including free shipping at hellofresh.com casket14 with code casket14. This episode is also sponsored by Talkspace. Working on our mental health is never a bad idea and Talkspace makes it easy to talk with a licensed therapist right from your device and get the guidance or help you might need. Now, I've mentioned that I've spent years on and off in therapy dealing with anxiety, depression, whatever else is going on. I have a lot of imposter syndrome problems and I'm trying to work through that, but I am not a confident person. And I started working with Talkspace and using the service a couple months ago and then turning around and finding out that they wanted to work with me and sponsor some episodes was pretty cool too. And if you're listening to my content pretty regularly because I know it's pretty depressing and sometimes really tough to actually create the content, I can only assume that you perhaps have had a rough day here and there as well. Well, Talkspace makes it easy to maintain your privacy and security and their encryption keeps every conversation fully protected. And you can message your therapist throughout the day, whatever you need. So it doesn't matter what you're going through, Talkspace is there to give you the access you need to help you move forward. So join Talkspace today and start moving forward with a single message. Just visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code casket at signup. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code casket. 
course, we turn to him, hoping to learn some secrets of his meteoric success. I used to stay at work until uh, 11 or 12, and then go home and read for a while. That's 11 or 12 p.m. As he showed me the main Microsoft campus, Bill confessed that he's a workaholic. He puts in hours even on weekends. I only let them schedule meetings on uh, Saturday. Bill Gates has a sort of fatherly philanthropist image around him. As Bloomberg puts it, he was known to drive his kids to school, binge modern family, dress like Ned Flanders, and wait in line for his favorite cheeseburgers. Still an average guy despite the wealth, yeah? Well, while that side of him may not have been a downright lie, once more, that's only part of what he's presented to the public. It isn't necessarily the entire picture. When Bill and Melinda Gates announced they were splitting up, far more stories about Bill began to spread, and they certainly did not fit in with his lovable father figure type image. In fact, there's been reports that he had a reputation for questionable behavior long before the divorce. Apparently in 2018, Melinda Gates wasn't happy with how he handled a sexual harassment claim against his longtime money manager. The man in question, Michael Larson, still remains at his job to this day. On at least a few occasions, Bill is said to have pursued women who worked for him at Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The New York Times writes, In 2019, Microsoft's board of directors on which Mr. Gates sat opened an investigation into one of those cases after being notified that he had sought to initiate an intimate relationship with a company employee in the year 2000, Frank X. Shaw, a Microsoft spokesman said on Sunday. The board hired a law firm to investigate. The following year, Mr. Gates stepped down from Microsoft's board. The Wall Street Journal reported the 2000 incident and the board's investigation. There was an affair almost 20 years ago, which ended amicably, said Bridget Arnold, a spokeswoman for Mr. Gates. Gates' decision to transition off the board was in no way related to this matter. In 2006, Bill also pursued a Microsoft employee, asking her out to dinner. In an email, he told her that if it made her uncomfortable, then she could pretend it never happened. Although his behavior wasn't predatory in nature, he wasn't coercing or threatening any of the women. He definitely wasn't the loving, doting husband that he appears to be by multiple accounts. And this is where I wanna add just a quick trigger warning here for the next couple minutes, I'm going to mention sexual abuse and they won't be graphic in any way, but just letting you know, next couple minutes might be a little bit sensitive. Worryingly enough, Bill Gates also knew and spent time with Jeffrey Epstein starting in 2011, three years after he faced serious sexual accusations. Melinda allegedly told Bill that she was uncomfortable with this as anyone should be, but Bill continued spending time with the sex offender. It wasn't until the relationship between Epstein and Bill burst into public view that Melinda got a divorce lawyer. And the thing is, I don't consider something like this to be airing dirty laundry or petty. You might argue that in the case of Bezos's divorce, because it largely seems like it's based on cheating, that's just invading someone's personal life. But in this case, Bill's behavior affects far more than just his own marriage. He proved how little he cared about sexual assault and harassment, both in his workplace and in his friend group. When someone as powerful as Bill Gates condones or enables that sort of behavior, it's incredibly concerning. Even if the meetings were only about philanthropy, are you really going to tell me that someone as rich as Bill Gates couldn't have spoken to anyone else about this? It had to be a sexual predator? I just, I highly doubt that, even if that's just my opinion. Suffice to say, his nerdy do-gooder image has taken a massive hit because of this. There's been online debates where some say Bill and Melinda are still responsible for saving lives, even if he's not perfect, because no one is. Regardless of what you may think of Bill Gates now, the reality is that with him, as well as all these other billionaires and celebrities, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. 
Now, there are other wealthy people who face these same accusations. Today, I just wanted to discuss some of the more well-known names out there. Another billionaire, for example, is someone named Robert Smith, and he paid off student debt of an entire graduating class from Morehouse College. Even though he had the image of a generous philanthropist, he had concealed income and evaded taxes for 15 years by using foreign trusts, corporations, and bank accounts to cheat the IRS. Bloomberg reads, A statement of facts that Smith agreed to chip away the carefully crafted public image that he had erected over the past five years as he had used a charitable foundation he runs and his family money to donate hundreds of million dollars to various philanthropic causes. Recipients included Cornell University, Carnegie Hall, and the United Negro College Fund. Instead, he used that 2.5 million in untaxed funds to buy a vacation home. Seriously, is it any wonder the wealth gap is so horrible? As if this isn't bad enough though, the cheating, the lying, the associations with Epstein and the fraud, there's another big reason that billionaires want to be loved publicly and that makes public donations to colleges and charities. Personally, I believe they put up this front because they want to hide where they actually spend their money in private. If we the public knew where their money was really going, then we may not be so quick to support them. The very top titans we've discussed today, people like Bezos, Bill Gates, and even Warren Buffett have all taken left of center stands on various issues. Yet while billionaires talk about environmental issues and gay rights in a more liberal sense, they're often extremely conservative on economic issues. The Guardian says that they are obsessed with cutting estate taxes that only apply to the wealthiest Americans and unenthusiastic about government programs that help with jobs, incomes, healthcare, or retirement pensions, programs supported by a large majority of Americans. Generally speaking, many billionaires will appear progressive when it suits them and then shut up about everything else. The Guardian explains, billionaires who favor unpopular ultra-conservative economic policies and work actively to advance them, that is most politically active billionaires, stay almost entirely silent about these issues in public. This is a deliberate choice. Billionaires have plenty of media access, but most of them choose not to say anything at all about the policy issues of the day they deliberately pursue a strategy of what we call stealth politics. We have come to this conclusion based on an exhaustive web-based study of everything that the 100 wealthiest US billionaires have said or done over a 10-year period concerning several major issues of public policy. When it comes to the estate tax, Gates, Buffett, and Bloomberg, three known billionaires, all spoke out in support of estate tax. However, when it came to actually funding it, there were no billionaires that took action to support it. Instead, several wealthy inheritors of the Walton, Walmart, and Mars candy fortunes gave money to those trying to abolish the tax. Billionaires can definitely afford to put their money where their mouth is, but some simply don't. There are plenty more smaller cases of this building an image issue. Gina Reinhart, who gains her money through mining, is said to treat her workers like garbage and wear a mining uniform to photo ops to appear like a blue collar worker when she's cruel and out of touch. Some billionaires, on the other hand, are so openly corrupt that I'm not sure they've ever had a likable image to begin with. All in all, I'd say the takeaway that I've found while researching this topic is simple. We don't know these people, we only know what their PR team tells us about these people. Their image is just as, if not more so, crafted than any celebrity you admire, especially those that are well-known within the public eye. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed something and I hope you learned something new today. If you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I had a great time digging into this, even though it's perhaps a bit of a shorter episode. It's been something that's been on my mind and I just wanted to start taking a peek at what's behind the veil. 
So thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.